Now, I want to begin now with a test for you, a very simple test. Here we go. If a bike has no bell, is it still a bike? I think that's pretty simple, isn't it? Yes, it's still a bike. If a bike has no saddle, is it still a bike? Yes, it's still a bike. It might be quite awkward, mightn't it? In fact, I remember once having my bike saddle stolen and I had to cycle five miles home, remembering not to sit down. That was awkward, but it was still a bike. If a bike has scruffy paint, is it still a bike? Yes, it's still a bike. If a bike has no wheels, is it still a bike? No, that one isn't a bike, is it? Because bike is short for bicycle and bicycle means two wheels. To be a bicycle, it must have two wheels. Some things are optional, but two wheels are not if you're a bike. For the Christian, some things are optional, but love is not. Love is not optional. Tonight is all about this. A person without love is not a Christian. Whatever else he or she may have, whatever else he or she may claim, a person without love is simply not a Christian. Please, would you come with me to 1 John chapter 2 again? 1 John chapter 2 and verses 7 to 14. Verse 7 to 14. 1 John is a letter written so you may know you have eternal life. It says that in chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. John's gospel tells you how to get eternal life. John's letter tells you how to know you've got it. And it gives us three tests of whether we have eternal life. Obedience, love and belief about Jesus. Those tests spiral through this letter. He doesn't just go through one test and write, I've done that. Now the next one. He keeps coming back to them. They spiral through the letter. The tests of obedience, love and belief about Jesus. And today we're in verses that focus on the love test. Verses 7 to 14 focus on the love test. Now, here's how I plan to go through those verses in three stages. First of all, the doctrinal foundation. Then the love test itself and then reassurance for those who take the love test. So first of all, the doctrinal foundation in verses seven to eight. I almost skipped over these verses, but I then discovered they're massively important. We are, I hope, going to learn a lot from verses seven and eight. They provide the foundation for the test. Now, school assemblies. Children, what what do you think of school assemblies? Adults, what are your memories of school assemblies? I gave an assembly at a school on the Christian belief that we are made in the image of God. And I spoke about how Christians believe this gives everyone value because we're all made in the image of God. At the end of my assembly, the headmistress said, to the whole school there. We are a school that values everyone because everyone's good at something. Now, what do you think of that? We're a school that values everyone because everyone's good at something. Well, it sounds nice and it's good to value everyone, but she had no solid foundation for that value. 
everyone's good at something is a really poor, a treacherous, a sandy foundation. What about people who don't seem to be good at anything? And who decides what things are worth being good at? It's a really dangerous foundation to say we value people because they're good at something. Our society has poor foundations for its values. Even when it gets its values right, it gets its reasons for them wrong. But Christianity has solid, reliable foundations for its values. They are well grounded. So let's see the doctrinal foundation for the love test. Verse seven. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Now, what is this command he's talking about that's old? It's the command to love. You can tell that because of what follows. First nine onwards is about love. There's nothing else in the context it could be about. You get confirmation of this from 2 John, the next letter that is so short it doesn't even have chapters, it's just got verses. And verse 5 of 2 John says, And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. The old command is a command to love. And the love, the command to love is old. It's old. Now, many people think, oh, love comes from the New Testament. The Old Testament's the nasty bit. That's all about fighting and food laws. And that's nasty. It's love came through in the New Testament. But that is so wrong. God's people down through their history have had statements of faith. The ones we have now are really long. The first one God's people had was really short. It was the one the Israelites had in Deuteronomy 6. Right back early on in the New Testament, and their their statement of faith was this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Right at the heart of their religion was love. And at the heart of their religion was a set of laws. And we think tend to think laws and love are opposites. But they were giving given laws that were all about love. They showed them what it was like to love God and to love their neighbor. In fact, the law was summarized by loving God and loving their neighbor. And that's no surprise because the Old Testament and its law comes from a God who is love. God is love. Ah, you might say, that's New Testament. That's where it says God is love. Oh, no, the Old Testament does, too. Throughout the Old Testament, there keep on being references back to what is God like? Well, he showed it to Moses. If you want to know what God is like, look back to when God showed it to Moses. And what did he show himself to be like? put Moses in the cleft of the rock in the mountain and he passed by and he said, I am the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. That's Old Testament. That is 
the revelation of God that the Old Testament keeps on going on about, abounding in love, maintaining love to thousands, full of compassion. And so that loving God told us to love because he made us in his image. Oh, that's Old Testament, too. We're made in the image of the God of love. And so we, it makes sense, we are to love. And so John says here in verse seven, I'm not writing you a new command because New Testament Christianity doesn't tear up the Old Testament and say, let's start again. It doesn't say here's a completely new religion. It doesn't encourage us to forget our old foundations. New Testament Christianity is built on the old. And in the old, we were told to love. But then we get verse eight. What do you make of this? Have a look at verse eight. Yet I am writing you a new command. Does John like talking in riddles? He does seem he does seem to like talking in riddles. He does seem to like to. Well, he's not liking to get us confused. He's liking to get us thinking. And it should provoke us to think, how can it be old and yet it's new? And the clue is in the end of verse eight. Verse eight, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Now, that's the clue to what he's meaning. How is the true light already shining? When John was writing this, how was it that the true light had just recently started shining? Oh, well, that is fairly straightforward if you know your New Testament, especially if you know John's gospel, because John's gospel started by talking about Jesus and saying in him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it or the darkness has not overcome it. John's gospel starts by saying Jesus is the light and he has come and shone into the darkness and the darkness couldn't overpower it. And so the darkness is being pushed away by Jesus, the light. And that's why this commandment is old and yet new, because Jesus, who is light and love, has come to push away the darkness. Now, this means several things, and I'm not going to go through them all this evening because we need to get on to that love test. But here's one of them. Imagine going into an old stately home. And there are shutters on the windows and just a little light is coming in through the cracks of those shutters. So you can dimly see you can dimly see that there are pictures on the walls and you can see they've got gold frames, but you can't really see what the picture is. And you can feel under your feet that the carpet is rich and soft. And you see that there's a chair over there and you go and feel it. Oh, it's got nice velvety covers. And then someone opens the shutters and the light floods in. And you can see just how magnificent that picture is. And you can see just where that chair is so that you can sit down safely on it. And they haven't changed what's in the room. No, it's still the same room, but now it's lit up. And the Old Testament is like a well-furnished room. The Old Testament is full of rich truth. It's full of great revelation of God. It is full of 
detailed descriptions of what love is like and commands of how to love. And the coming of Jesus didn't change all of that, but he lit up that well-furnished room. He showed up to us more fully the God who is love and what it means to obey the command of love. He showed it by his teachings. Most obvious is think of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus didn't bring in new laws. No, he showed exactly what those old laws meant, that they never were about just doing the bare minimum to keep the rule. They were always about having a a loving heart that flowed out in right and generous actions. He showed it by his teachings. Of course, he showed it above all by his own actions. 1 John 3 verse 16. There are lots of good 316s in the Bible, aren't there? Um, Of course, all the verses in the Bible are good, but there are lots of great 3 verse 16s. And this is one of them. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. The coming of Jesus shed light on what was already there. God was already love. His command was already love. But the coming of Jesus did more than that, actually. It meant, verse 8 tells us, it meant the darkness is passing. The coming of Jesus meant the darkness was being pushed away and the light was shining in, not just to illuminate what the Old Testament meant, but to illuminate this dark world. Now, Jews back then knew that God's plan was made up of the present age and the age to come. You can read places in the Gospels where the Jews speaking to Jesus referred to the present age and the age to come. They knew that was God's plan. But the coming of Jesus meant that the age to come has burst into the present age. The age to come has overlapped with the present age. To illustrate this, children, do you learn about Venn diagrams at school? I expect some of you do. And I think we can get a Venn diagram up on the screen now. Sorry, it's a bit scruffy. I drew it myself. And sorry to those who can't see it. But there we've got the present age and the age to come overlapping. And where they overlap is between when Jesus came first and when he's coming back. His first coming brought in the age to come. His second coming brings to an end the present age. And we live in those last days when they overlap. Good. Thanks, Philip. We'll get rid of my rather scruffy drawing that I did. So we live in the overlap of the ages. The darkness is being pushed out as the light of God's love is shining. It's not that in the Old Testament God wasn't love or his love wasn't known. But now Jesus has come. There is a man who has on this earth fully loved. And we, through him, can fully love because he's given us his spirit. And so now the light of God's love should be displayed by us. Now we've received God's love through Jesus. So we love because he first loved us. Or here's another way of putting it. God is the sun, S-U-N. 
And Jesus is the rays of light from the sun. This is a thing down in church history, theologians have said, because the sun and its rays are two different things, but they both totally rely on each other. The sun wouldn't be the sun if it didn't have rays from it. And the rays wouldn't be there if it wasn't for the sun. And so God and Jesus are different, but totally inseparable. And we, what are we? Well, we're the moon. And those rays come from the sun and strike the moon and the moon reflects them to a dark world. And so God is love. And through Jesus, that love comes to us and we reflect it to a dark world. So the darkness is pushed away. That's what we are supposed to be. Now, having set the doctrinal foundation, let's secondly move into the love test. Now, secondly, the love test. And this is verses nine to eleven. Given what we've just heard, verse nine is obvious. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. That's obvious, isn't it? Given what we've just heard. Now, please remember the bike test. I hope it's not muddling having too many tests this evening, but please remember the bike test. A scruffy bike with bad quality brakes and worn tires is still a bike. A believer with poor love that ought to be improved is still a Christian. But a so-called believer without love is like a bike without two wheels, not a Christian. Now, as I preach this, I have a bit of a difficulty here. And the difficulty is I must avoid troubling worried Christians. I must avoid setting the standard so high that those who have weak love say, oh, I must not be a Christian at all. In other words, we must avoid disqualifying scruffy bikes. But I must also avoid setting the standard so low that we never take the test. We must actually take the test. In other words, I must avoid accepting things without wheels in as bikes just because they've got a handlebar and saddle. So we must remember here that John is not getting at people with weak love, people whose love needs to grow. He's not writing a set of instructions to tell you how to grow your love. And he's not beating up Christians. Come on, love better. He's showing you up if you just plain do not have love. In fact, he puts it more strongly, doesn't he? Verse nine. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. And again, verse 11, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. Now, we we must consider what this means, because here's the test. So first of all, who is the brother he's talking about? Well, it's our fellow Christians. Or to put it more broadly, it's the people who go to church with you. You're not allowed to say, well, I don't think of that one as a Christian. I'm allowed to hate that one. No, it's the people who go to church with you. It's the people in other churches that you know as well. It's the people who call themselves Christians and give some evidence of being Christians who are around you. Yes, we should love our neighbour. I'm not for a moment denying that. It's just not the subject here. 
Now, those Christians you know, those people you mix with at church or, or from other churches, do you hate them? Well, I doubt anyone is sitting there saying, yes, I hate them. Hate is a really strong word and we hardly ever say we hate someone. There might be a particular person you think, yes, I hate that one. Well, well, then you look at verse nine and 11, what it tells you about you. If there is someone you hate. But we hardly ever say we hate someone. So let's have a think about what hate is like. Hate wants to think the worst about someone. Hate likes finding reason to find fault with someone. Now, if you gossip about people, if you criticise people, that is bad, that is unloving, but that isn't quite the same as what I've said. You must correct that. You must repent of that. But it's not quite the same as what I just said hate is. Do you want to find fault with your fellow Christian? Are you glad when you find reason to think the worst of them? That is hate. And that means you are not a Christian. Here's another one. Hate wants to have nothing to do with your fellow Christian. Now, again, we've got to be tread very carefully here and take the test properly. I'm going to make up a person here. So if there's someone called Fred listening, sorry, I've just picked a name. Right. Let's imagine Fred is a terrible bore. If you spend any time with Fred, he will want to talk to you for hours about train timetables. Now, sorry to anyone who's really into train timetables, but to me, that sounds really boring. I'm sorry if I've trodden on anyone's toes. Now, if spending hours listening to Fred talk about train timetables doesn't sound like great fun to you, if you have to push yourself to spend time with Fred, that is not hate. But if you will never have anything to do with Fred, if you will put you being free from boredom above ever showing him any kindness or courtesy and actually spending time with him. That is hate. You're acting totally self-centeredly and without any regard for him. That is hate. Let's have another example. Let's I'm again picking a name out of the air and I'm trying to pick names. I can't think of anyone at Hollywell having. So let's imagine you've fallen out with Kira. And you find it difficult to go and say sorry and heal that falling out. You find it difficult to work at being reconciled with Kira. That is not hate. You must ask God for help and you must do the right thing and you must humble yourself and go and work at it. But if you have no desire to heal the breach in the relationship, if you would rather bear a grudge and nurse a grievance, that is hate. That is putting life being easier for you above anything to do with her. That is hate. 
Now, there is much more to be said about this, and and I've approached it from the negative end of what hate is. In verse 10, he talks about what about how we must love. But I'm going to leave that side, actually, until we get to chapter three, verse 16, where we get this magnificent description of what love must be like. And we actually get a very high standard of love. So there's much more to be said about love, but I'm going to leave it because John has this spiral where he will keep coming back to it. And God willing, we'll see it later. Before we move on from these verses, though, just a quick comment on verse 10 and 11. Verse 10. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. John is saying our love or hatred, don't, they don't just show whether we're in the light or darkness. They also contribute to the light or the darkness we are already in. Did you get that? They don't just show whether you're in the light or darkness. They also contribute to the light if you're in it or they contribute to the darkness if you're in that. So, for example, the person who loves considers how to avoid sinning against the person he or she loves. Maybe you don't consider it as negatively as how do I avoid sinning against them. Hopefully you you consider positively how do I care for them? How do I show kindness to them? How do I support them? Now, sometimes you'll make mistakes. Sometimes you'll say something to them when they're hurt and you get it quite wrong because you were well-meaning, but you messed up. But generally, your love guides you and helps you to avoid sinning. In contrast, the person who hates finds excuses for his sin. The person who hates is prejudiced against that person and therefore misjudges him. And the person who hates will not listen to correction. And so just keeps on stumbling around in the dark. Well, we've had a foundation for the test. We've then had the test. Have you tested yourself? We must do so. I'll come back to that in a minute. But before we come back to test results, we're going to have some reassurance for those who take the test. This is verses 12 to 14. Let's move on. Verses 12 to 14. Now, I love it that the Bible was written by many different personalities and they have different styles. I hope you found that as you've read the Bible. You know, Moses has a very different style from David and his Psalms. And David and the Psalms have a very different style from Isaiah and the prophets. And Luke has a very different style from John, who wrote in simple Greek, but in rather a puzzling way. He's rather puzzling to many of us. And I expect many of us find verse 12 to 14 puzzling because he repeats himself in the space of a few lines. And it's not entirely clear what he's saying. So I'm going to bring to you how I think verse 12 to 14 fit in. I think they're a bit like this. Are you a checker? Do you like checking things? Yeah, 
some people are really into checking things. Other people are not. I saw an amusing video recently of, of a man. It was one of these. It's the security camera. And a, an elderly man goes into a shop and he gets to the door and he goes around the corner of the door. And he's going to what do you do these days when you go into somewhere? Well, you might do this. Sanitize your hands. And he sees something. And he pulls the lever down and uh, something comes over his hands and he rubs it all in. But he hasn't checked. It was hand sanitizer. It wasn't. It was the slush puppy ma- uh, machine. <laughs> and he's rubbing slush puppy all over his hands. But personally, I'm a checker. I'm always checking things. I, I about two or three times in the evening before I go to bed, check I've locked the car. Going on holiday is a bit of a nightmare. How many times must I check the windows are closed and the oven is off and the doors are locked? Are you a checker? Now, I don't actually expect the oven to be on. And I don't actually expect that uh, I've forgotten to lock the door of the car. I just want to be reassured. And sometimes I find the car is unlocked. And I think that in verses 12 to 14, John is telling the people he wrote to, I'm not thinking that you're hypocrites. I'm not thinking that you're false Christians, but I'm giving you these tests to check and to reassure you. It's not that I'm expecting you to have gone completely wrong, but let's check for reassurance sake and There have been false Christians around in this church. So there is a possibility, just like I do sometimes find the cars unlocked. Sometimes you might find that there are false Christians around. So I think verses 12 to 14 are effectively saying, I'm not writing to you because I expect you to fail the test. In fact, I have a high view of you. I think you are my fellow Christians. I believe you're in the light. And so I'm writing this test to reassure you. And so verse 12 to 14, if you look at it, you you can see he's reassuring them. He's saying, I actually think well of you. I think you'll pass the test. I think it will reassure you. He's reassuring these different people in the church. Now, why does he call them dear children and then call them fathers and then call them young men and then do it all again? Well, Because he knows there are different categories in the church and he knows we don't learn things just in one go. And actually, being sure we're Christians is something we often really struggle over and it needs repeating. And so he writes to these different categories that probably mean those who are like children in the faith, the less mature Christians, those who are like fathers in the faith, the older Christians who've had many years of following Christ and the young men who, well, yes, they're in they're in between the two and they're almost like at the peak of their strength and confidence. And he writes to them because different stages of Christian maturity have different characteristics. If you're a new young Christian, anyone listening to me, a new young Christian, if you are, you don't have the older people's experience. But you do have that you are forgiven and you know God is your father. So that's what he picks out here. If you're an older Christian, are there older Christians listening? I know there are because I've seen some of you on Zoom. I can see one here. You may not have the young men's energy and strength. But you do have that experience of having known God through hard times and good times 
having proved his faithfulness over many years. You see, John is a good pastor and he wants to reassure the Christians, but he knows that they're different. And he knows our unhelpful tendency to compare ourselves with others. It's a real pain. Don't do it. We're always comparing ourselves with others. And it either puffs us up with pride or it depresses us. It's really bad. It's no good. Don't compare yourself with others. Compare yourself with God's word. Don't be assessing yourself by comparisons with a different stage in the Christian life. Here's again another made up example. Ethel is 85. Ethel is a good name, isn't it, for an 85 year old. Ethel is 85 and she looks back on when she became a Christian in her 20s and she remembers how enthusiastic she was. And she looks at the 20 somethings in church and she sees how with such energy they're throwing themselves into service. And she worries that she is a weak, poor. Is she a Christian at all? Was that just initial enthusiasm and now has she really declined spiritually? Well, it is right to remind yourself of the past and to stir up enthusiasm. But you must also be realistic. In your 80s, well, you just don't naturally have the same enthusiasm and energy as people in their 20s. That's just naturally the way it works. Different stages of life have different strengths and weaknesses. And John is a good pastor and he knows that. And so he's writing to reassure them. I've got confidence you'll pass this test. By the way, young men, are there any young men listening? I reckon young men is 18 to 35. If if you've just a bit over, we'll, we'll, we'll allow you in. But I reckon it's about 18 to 35. Any young men listening? Do notice verse 14. Now is the best time for you to get the word of God in you richly. Now is a good time for you to throw yourself into fighting sin, overcoming Satan and serving in Christ church. Don't think it's for later when you're mature. Now now is a time you've got energy. You might have more time than before. You might or later. You might not think that, but maybe you do. Now is a good time. Young men and young women, throw yourself into it. Well, we've had the doctrinal foundation, we've had the test, we've had reassurance for those who take the test. And I'll go back right back to the beginning. Remember this, if you have a scruffy bike, improve it. Don't conclude it's not a bike. If you have weak and poor love, work at that love. But you haven't failed the test. If your bike doesn't have two wheels, it has failed the test. It is not a bike. If you don't have love, you are not a Christian. If you don't love your fellow Christian, you are not a Christian. If you hate any Christians and remember what we said hate is like, you are not a Christian. It makes no difference what you claim. It makes no difference what others think of you. It makes no difference your years of service in the church. If you do not have love, you are not a Christian. And that means you don't have eternal life. And that means at the moment you are on the road to eternal death. 
So do not ignore that. Do not sweep this under the carpet as, oh, it's just another talk at church and move on. God has given this test here for your good. He's given it here as a warning alarm to you before it's too late. Remember that God is love. However unloving you are, he is love. And so speak to him. Admit to him you are so different from him and you are the one in the wrong. And ask him for his mercy and ask him to forgive you and ask him to change what you are like. Ask. Ask, Jesus says, and it shall be given you.